Well, I wonder if you've ever been on a boat that you were afraid was going to sink. Uh, maybe, maybe a great storm was, was threatening to tear the boat apart, to leave you clinging to broken boards, fully exposed to the force of the waves crashing down upon you. Maybe you've been there. I, I don't recall having experienced too much of a scare on a boat before, but, but I've definitely been in airplanes that threatened to break apart and to plunge me to the earth. It, maybe it was never quite that serious, but, but when you pass through that kind of turbulence that, that causes everybody in the cabin to cry out, and you free fall for even just a couple of seconds, it certainly feels like a crisis situation. Maybe you've been there. Or maybe it's not been a storm at sea or a storm in the air, but rather a storm here on the dry land. Maybe you've survived a, a hurricane bearing down on you, or an earthquake, or a tornado. Whether you were in your home, or in an office building, or, or God forbid, in your car, as you face such a storm. Ashley, Ethan, and I had to hole up in the kitchen over here next to the gathering place just a, a few months back as a, a tornado-producing storm rolled through Richland Hills. I'm sure you can relate. So put yourself back in those situations. What did you do when there was nothing that you could do? Where did you turn when there was nowhere for you to turn? Now, re recall the sensation when the rain and the winds calmed, as the boat or the plane or the car or the house was steadied. Remember the relief. Remember the peace. I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 4, verse 35. You can find it on page 39 in the second half of the Pew Bible. I'm going to begin by reading the first seven verses of our passage aloud. Mark chapter 4, verse 35, reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord to you. On that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking in to the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and sea and said to them, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word to us. By the Holy Spirit, apply your word to our hearts that we may find peace in the storm knowing that you do care and that you are with us in the storm. Father, bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, Mark begins his account with the words, on that day. So he's drawing our attention back to verse 1 of chapter 4, where, where Jesus began to teach beside the sea, and he, he got into a boat so as to, to teach those on the shore from a kind of floating pulpit. Verses 1 through 34 then record a series of, of four different parables about the coming of the kingdom of God. That's what we looked at last week. Followed here then in verse 35 by a series of four different miracles, attesting to the truth and the power of his words. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, 
Let us go across to the other side. That is, across the Sea of Galilee. I'll go ahead and pull up a map here to kind of help us look at it. So there, you see here on the left is the Mediterranean Sea. At the top, that body of the water, is that's the Sea of Galilee. And at the bottom is the Dead Sea. You've got the Jordan River between them. So we're at the top body of water, the smaller one, the Sea of Galilee. In the northwest corner there, at the tip of that little white line, that is Capernaum, the northwest shore, the Sea of Galilee. So they're getting into a boat, and they're heading east, southeast, kind of towards the Decapolis there, over to the eastern shore. So we're talking about six to eight miles if you were to traverse it in a straight line. Verse 36. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. What does that mean, just as he was? Well, well, it probably means without Jesus going back ashore after teaching from the boat. He teaches all those parables for a day of teaching from the boat. Before getting back on the shore, just as he was, he begins his journey across the sea, and they get in the boat with him. Maybe that's what it means, though I will say, with the closing words of this account being the question, who then is this? One wonders if the words, just as he was, means just as he appeared to be, as just a man. But as he's about to demonstrate, he was not just a man. Verse 37, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. How interesting that the only time that Jesus is explicitly recorded as ever sleeping in the Bible is in the midst of a great windstorm. This body of water is surrounded by mountains at most points, and the waters are known to swirl violently when strong wind suddenly enters the valley there. Remember that a number of these men in the boat with him are professional fishermen, and it would seem that, that even they are in a panic with nothing left to do with nowhere left to turn, feeling helpless in the presence of very real danger. And so they woke Jesus and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, do they, they really believe that, that he can do something about the storm? Or are they merely shocked at his seeming indifference toward their shared plight? Even if they do have some measure of faith that, that he could do something, the question that they posed to him reveals great confusion about who he was, about his character, about why he has come. Don't you care? That's the question they ask him. Don't you care? The very Son of God had, had humbled himself to the point of becoming a man in order to suffer. In order to suffer not just the fury of a great windstorm, but to suffer the fury of God's wrath against their sin in their place on the cross. He came into the world in order to die so that they may receive eternal life, so that they may no longer fear death. And yet they ask him, don't you care? He endured all of this for us. And yet, in the midst of the storms that we face in life, when faced with great danger, when, when experiencing great distress, we too are tempted to ask Him, Lord, don't you care? Which is to doubt His love for us. Danger, distress, darkness, disease, disability, death, the brokenness of this world and the trials that we face, they, they, they consistently cause us to doubt either God's power to do something, His wisdom in permitting something, or His loving care for us. 
his power, his wisdom, or his care. We, we know this well. And so, so we need to be challenged by Jesus' response to them. Verse 39. And Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. The wind ceased. There was a great calm. He speaks to the winds and the, and the waves as, as though they pose no real danger whatsoever. As though they are completely under His control. As though He made them. And they do His bidding. Verse 40. And He said to His disciples, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Notice, notice that Jesus sets fear in opposition to faith. For Jesus, faith and fear are opposites from one another. He's saying that if they had the right kind of faith, faith in His loving care for them, then they would not be afraid. They would be at peace in knowing and in resting in Him, in His love for them. Even in the presence of danger and distress, they could have peace. They had faith in His love. Verse 41, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey Him? That's the question that each of the four Gospels wrestle with from beginning to end. Who is this man? It is the most important question to be asked as we encounter Jesus in this book. Our answer to this question, who is this? It will shape how we live our lives, both now and for eternity. As his disciples asked this most important of questions, quote, they were filled with great fear. Or more literally, they feared a great fear. The impression is being given that, that with the winds having ceased and the waters having calmed, these men are even more afraid than they were during the raging of the storm. Why? Because of what this means about who this man is. A man who can do what only God can do. You see, fear is the natural response to being in the presence of your Creator. Think of Isaiah as he, he cried out when he was granted a vision of the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. He said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah chapter 6. The question for the disciples in the boat is the same question being posed to us as the readers. Will you confess that Jesus is Lord, God the Son in human flesh? And in confessing Him to be Lord in God, will you remain in a posture of fear? Or will your fear give way to faith? Faith in His goodness towards those who turn to Him for refuge and strength. A couple of other points before moving on from this section. First, we ask the question, why did this great storm, this, this furious squall, as the NIV puts it, why did this great storm come upon them? Had they made a poor decision to set sail that night? Did they need to learn to be more cautious about the, the potential dangers around them so as to avoid such distress? No. It was Jesus who had said, let us go across to the other side. They had merely obeyed His command. 
Jesus led them into this storm. But why? Was it a form of punishment for their sin? No. For one, He was in the boat there with them. And these are the people who had responded rightly to His call to follow Him. The storm came upon them because of their obedience. Had they been like the Pharisees or the, or the others who had dismissed His call, and you know, the seed falling on the hard ground, well, they would not have found themselves in this position. You see, Jesus does not exist to spare us from all danger. That is not His promise for those who follow Him. Obedience often leads to greater danger. Just ask the believers in Mauritania, Northwest Africa, whom we prayed for earlier. Obedience often leads to greater danger and distress. And while Jesus did deliver His disciples in these boats from harm, that is not the promise for those who follow Him either. It's not protection from harm. Most of these disciples would go on to suffer imprisonment, torture, and execution for the sake of following Jesus and for the sake of seeking to lead others to do likewise. His promise is not protection from danger. His, his promise is not protection from harm. His promise is that He will be with us in the storm to calm our fear, to grant us peace and strength to persevere. He will be with us in the storm. His promise is that He has a purpose for having not merely permitted the storm to come upon us, but for having deliberately led us into it. He has a purpose for our trials. And thirdly, He will ultimately deliver us from death. He will ultimately deliver us from death, for He willingly cast Himself into the sea of death to pay the penalty that our sins demand so that all who trust in Him for the forgiveness of their sins will rise from the grave on the last day to enter into His glorious presence forever. Those are His promises. He is with us in the storm to calm our fear. He has a purpose for the storm, and He will ultimately deliver us from death. For those who have trusted in Him, every test and every trial, every wind and every wave is a call to turn to Him, to find peace in Him. Moved from fear to faith in His goodness and move from fear to worship. Now, we could easily spend all of our time in these verses at the end of chapter 4 this morning. And we could easily spend all of our time next Sunday in the following section, the beginning of chapter 5. But, but I've chosen to tackle both sections today for, for a few reasons. For one, I'm hoping to make it through the Gospel of Mark in less than six or seven months rather than spending a year or two just in one book. So we've got to keep at the pace. But there's also the fact that, that Mark has deliberately grouped together this series of four miracles. And these first two miracles that we're looking at this morning, the, the calming of the storm and the exorcism of the garrison demoniac, these two miracles are closely connected with a theme of faith versus fear. And furthermore, the, the, the demons in the next miracle explicitly answer the question that was just asked. Who then is this? Who is this man? He is the Son of the Most High God. So let's dive into the next section. Chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Country of the Gerasenes. Now, now when you read the, parable, the, the parallel account in Matthew, Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, you'll notice that it's called the country of the Gadarenes, with a D, Gadarenes. 
Some of our manuscripts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke say Gerasenes, some say Gadarenes, some say Gergesene. Clearly, there has been some confusion over the millennia regarding the proper designation for where this particular event took place. There was a city named Gerasa in the region there, east of the Sea of Galilee, but it seems to have been too far inland for the events that transpired to have taken place there. There's also a city named Gadara in the region, but it doesn't seem to quite fit either, particularly because of the apparent lack of any steep hills in that region of Gadara. So most believing scholars think that this took place in a small village that was once known with the Arabic name Kursa, Kursa, or Gersa, because it does have steep hills and it has cave-like tombs about about a mile to the south of it, about a mile north of what we believe was the official northern border of the Decapolis. Can you go back to the map? And so you'll see uh, on, the, on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, the map will come back up, oopsie, uh, the, the very northern edge of that line there of the Decapolis where that meets the Sea of Galilee, that's probably what we're talking about, maybe just north of that and was labeled there as the Tetrarch of Philip. So we don't know for certain. The, the ability to know the exact location with any certainty seems to have been lost with time. And understandably so, uh, with people speaking multiple languages in that region, from Arabic to Aramaic to Hebrew to Greek to Latin. So many languages floating around, with, with people moving in and, and out of the region because of conquest or because of drought far away from any of the world's great superpowers, the names of small villages on the shores of small lakes in such a context understandably can be forgotten and confused over time. Perhaps the Arabic name Kursa was, was translated, transliterated into Greek differently by Matthew than it was by Mark and Luke. And, and perhaps later scribes who were copying those manuscripts were unfamiliar with the little village and they mistakenly thought that the gospel writers intended to refer to the more well-known cities of the Decapolis, Gadara or Gersa. Whatever the case, whatever it was called at that time that Jesus was there, it was clearly on the other side of the Sea of Galilee in Gentile country. The other side of the Sea of Galilee in Gentile country. That's where we are. That's where they land after the storm. Verse 2. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one can bind him anymore, not even with chains, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he, that is Jesus, was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. A legion in the Roman military consisted of between four and 6,000 men. Which is not to say that there were actually that many demons present here, but, but that's the way they present themselves to Jesus, as legion. It's a terribly sad picture, isn't it? it it's the picture of a spiritual enslavement 
One that has resulted in in complete ostracism, complete isolation from other people. Living among the tombs, in the valley of dry bones. He's a picture of the living dead. And while few, if, if any of us, and of those that we've encountered have been possessed by demons in the way that this man was, there are still plenty of other points of connection between us and this man. Recall how God describes our spiritual condition apart from Christ before we believed in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, In the mind, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Dead in our sins, following the prince of the power of the air, children of wrath. We must not underestimate the power of the grip of sin and evil over the the hearts of those who have not yet been set free in Christ. All people are born in sin, just as desperate as this legion-possessed man was for the liberation that only Christ can bring. Understanding this will drive us to our knees in prayer for our neighbors. Verse 10. And he, the the man, or, or more likely the spokesman of legion, begged Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. Or as the New Living Translation renders it, not to send them out to some distant place. In the parallel passage in Luke chapter 8, it's recorded as, don't cast us out into the abyss. I think Legion is referring to the place of eternal torment that they knew they were headed for. The demons shudder in the presence of Jesus. Verse 11. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they, Legion, begged Jesus, saying, send us to the pigs, Let us enter them, as opposed to destroying them. Let us enter the pigs. Verse 13, so he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. I don't think that's what the demons had in mind. Uh, Presumably, they, they perished with the pigs or cast into the abyss. Though we don't know for certain what happened to them. This is easily the the most perplexing scene in the four Gospels, at least for me. So what are we to make of this This event with the pigs? Well, I I think we can say at least three things about the death of the pigs. One, it, it pictures the destruction that the spiritual forces of evil seek to cause you. The destruction of the pigs pictures the destruction the forces of evil seek to cause you. That's one. Two, It demonstrates the ability of Jesus to destroy those who seek to destroy you. Demonstrates the ability of Jesus to destroy those who seek to destroy you. And thirdly, it gives evidence that this man, one, that he really was possessed by demons, that he wasn't making it up. And two, that he really was set free by Jesus, that he wasn't making up his return to normalcy. The evidence of the pigs demonstrates that he really was possessed that he really was set free, attesting to the truth of Jesus' words and the power of that word. Picking up the account, verse 14, 
the herdsmen, meaning the people who were responsible for tending these pigs and making sure they didn't die and rush into the sea. Well, the herdsmen fled, and they told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. What a transformation. No longer running about the tombs naked, breaking shackles, crying out and cutting himself. The man was found clothed and in his right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus as one of his disciples. So how do the villagers respond who come and see this scene? Do they throw a party for the freed man, for their fellow villager who's been set free? They build a statue to honor the one who freed him. They get an annual celebration of Independence Day, celebrating Jesus. Last three words of verse 15, they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat to depart from the region, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with Jesus. So notice the stark contrast between the faith of the freedman and the fear of the villagers. We consider their fear. We, we, we could jump to the conclusion that, that they're primarily concerned with, with the blow that this loss of 2,000 pigs has caused to their economy and, and what it would cost them if Jesus' presence resulted in more livestock running into the sea. But that would miss the parallel with the disciples' similar response of fear in the immediately preceding verses after beholding Jesus calm the storm. Here, as there, it's the fear of being in the presence of such power. That's what causes them fear. It's the fear of being in the very presence of the Lord of all creation. It's seeing the radical kind of change that Jesus brought about in the life of this man and not wanting to hear what kind of change Jesus might be calling for in their own lives. So they want Him gone. But rather than their fear giving way to faith, faith in His proven goodness toward them, having delivered this man from spiritual enslavement, rather than fear giving way to faith, fear leads them to beg Jesus to depart from them, while the freed man's faith leads him to beg that he might be with Jesus. How do you respond to encountering Jesus in His Word? How you respond to encountering Jesus in His Word will determine how you will respond when you enter into His presence on the last day. Either in faith, desiring to be with Him, or in fear, desiring for Him to depart from you forever. Well, finally, and very briefly, the last section Hear the instruction that Jesus gives to his newest disciple who has just begged him to remain with him. He begged to remain with Jesus, to go with him into the boat across the sea. Verse 19, And Jesus did not permit the man to go with him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Jesus is not a genie in a bottle, right? He doesn't grant our every request, does He? We are His servants. He's not our servant. And what is the service to which He calls us? It's this. Go home and tell your friends how much the Lord has done for you. 
how He has had mercy on you. It's not about convincing them of the, the ontological or cosmological or teleological arguments for the existence of God or any other philosophical defense for the claims of Scripture. It's not about having all the answers to all the questions that might be raised. It's about going and telling how much the Lord has done for you. How much the Lord has done for you to free you from the, the enslaving grip of sin upon your heart. To free you from the eternal consequences of your sin by living, dying, and rising again in your place. Go and tell. And how does this newest servant respond to the commission given to him? Verse 20, the man went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is the life of faith. Turn to Jesus in the storms of life. Turn to him. Trust him with whatever may come. Having turned to him and trusting him, go and tell of him that others may come to know him and likewise be saved. Go and tell. Let us pray. Father, as we consider the example of the disciples in the boat and the example of the villagers by those tombs, we see that hearing the teaching of Jesus and even witnessing the miracles of Jesus are not enough to compel faith. And so we pray for anyone here who has not been moved from indifference to fear and from fear to faith. Lord, work a miracle in their hearts today through the preaching of your word. And for all who do have faith, bolster our faith, Father. Not only our faith in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, but, but our faith in your immeasurable love for us, even in the midst of the difficulties that we face. And then giving us peace in the storms of life, compel us to go and tell others of your love for them. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.